Yeah, they had us the first half, I'm not gonna lie. They had us. We weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts, it took an attitude. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what I clicked on as he said, it's the media. Hello, hello. You are listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Off-Court Podcast. We are a podcast that talks about the esoteric stories, the weird histories, and the political economy of sports. We are currently recording that on February 21st, uh, two days after the Raptors have hit 500 for the first time this season. Let's go Raps, baby! Yeah, we're not going to be talking about basketball today, but like this is the first good thing that's happened to me and Abdul as Raptors fans. Um, it does come in the uh, in the same time as uh, Redacted uh, Davis II is uh, has dropped uh, five of his seven assault charges uh, and other terrible things that he's done. Um, so it also feels kind of like a loss at the same time to be at 500 as Raptors fans. So I'm a, I'm a bit confused emotionally, Abdul. I don't know how you feel. Uh, I'm pissed. Uh, it also comes at the same time as people are saying the Raptors should trade for Boogie. Um, <laughs> yeah, that'd be a great combination. Boogie <laughs> yeah. and Terrence Davis. And weirdly, Boogie is a little bit more morally sound than Terrence Davis. So maybe it'd be a slight improvement. Boogie just threatened to kill someone. He didn't actually kill, like hit someone. Yeah. Um, yeah, or endanger will, a child, you know, or get yeah. the, I guess, and also he avoided the charges, so maybe we should give him <laughs> some some benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I mean the the best thing Boogie ever did was he tweeted at a Sacramento radio oh, host yeah. who was yeah. posting <laughs> that. Actually, I mean, fuck Boogie, he's an asshole. I don't like him. I don't want him on the Raptors. But that was a legendary. That was so sad. Where he's like, I forget what he said. I forget who it was, but to this guy, he was like, uh, who was tweeting about. Nothing in particular. He's like, so how do you feel about Black Lives Matter and yeah. during the protest? And the guy just like went off on him. <laughs> like you know, he was sitting on that. Like he hated this guy for years. He was sitting on this opportunity. Kind of for... amazing. Yeah, like that is really playing the long game because immediately the guy was fired. Um, I'm just like, you know what? I appreciate that just level of coldness. Um, yeah, and then and in relation to that, the uh, only thing that Terrence David has, T- Davis has done publicly is cut a hole in his mask while he was in the bubble to protest masks. So, yeah, I don't know. If we replace Boogie, uh, uh, Terrence Davis with Boogie, then maybe we're a bit morally sound. But if we have Sophie's both. Choice. That's such a <laughs> Sophie's Choice situation. Um, yeah, uh, someone messaged me yesterday asking, like, do you, would you trade – or TD2 for Boogie, right? I'm just like, why would you put anyone in that situation? <laughs> but uh, who knows? I... Bobby Webster might be cold enough to do it. Um, we don't know. Yeah, Fuck. what's the uh, Bobby Bobby Tarantino Webster? Um, <laughs> I have not heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Logic. I know he gets clowned on a lot, but I yeah. actually really, really love uh, Logic. Oh my god! Um, oh yeah, we've talked before about your love of white rappers. Um, we won't we won't regurgitate that too much. And um, white players, you know, Stockton white... Gasol. <laughs> <laughs> We're basically the old man in the sea, but uh, but we like other sports. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out uh, JJ Racist, um, also a person I don't want on my team. Um, anyways. Should we get into it? Sorry. Yeah, let's yeah, let's yeah. fucking get, break into another white athlete. <laughs> another white athlete. Today, um, we're going to be talking about um, the tragic story of an NFL player who ended up um, uh, enlisting in the army around the time of the Iraq War, and his name was Pat Tillman. Um, Abdul recommended that I read 
John Krakauer's Where Men Win Glory in preparation for this episode. And like, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy the read. Um, and I'm like really excited to go through the fascinating details in it. Like, it is, we are going to be regurgitating a little bit of history that maybe some people know, but it, when it's put in the timeline and in the framework that John Krakauer outlines, it's, it's quite fascinating and also is really depressing when you uh, think about the place of the America as a Western power and as an empire currently, especially with what's going on right now. I mean, not much has changed. Joe Biden is in office, right? He was one of the biggest champions of the Iraq war as a Democrat. That feels fucking weird. Um, and here we are now talking about this story from like two decades ago now, and it feels strangely relevant and strangely echoing what is going on today in the world perhaps not with the same uh region of the world because it almost seems like america is like over destabilizing the middle east in a sense and it's just going to let israel do that from now on on its own accord but yeah what do you think about that abdul in terms of like discussing this book in 2021 i mean it's still relevant as ever like Mm -hmm. it's it's ultimately the book and most uh, stories like this are like a form of like contemporary American mythmaking, which like is so tied into upholding athletics and capitalism, upholding the the systems of like especially sports uh, labor that allow for people to be exploited, both like on a sociocultural level. Say you know that black kid whose brother was shot in the hood, who who persevered mm-hmm. against all odds to make it to the top, or like the way that that you know the military industrial complex is so tied into sports to the point where you know someone like Pat Tillman who we'll talk a little bit about his career you know could become like the poster child of you know America's morality in the Middle East a quote unquote morality in the Middle East despite actually being like very anti-war yeah despite being anti-war but at the same time and what we'll discuss in terms of like the dichotomy and the weird like maybe contradictions within pat's philosophy is he did end up enlisting in the army you know specifically when the america was going to iraq which was not you know the most popular war at the time and yeah what we're going to see is no matter how hard Pat tried, he was going to become this poster hero for the American industri- uh, military industrial complex, no matter what. I think it's also a key story about like the capacity of people to transform. Like we yeah. we run into this all the time, and there's obviously there's obviously ebbs and flows to it. There's obviously a lot of you know sort of context around the idea of like someone being able to turn away from you know previously held beliefs that that made them. Uh, you know, despicable. Um, I don't think Pat Tillman was ever despicable, but like he learned a lot and then came to a conclusion that, you know, we would call like a moral conclusion and embodied that moral conclusion that that conclusion may also be the thing that got him killed. Right. Like eyes left is a great podcast. I'm going to recommend by the West point communist college grad who got drubbed out of, out of uh, the military for um, king shit, actually putting Mm. communism will win on his graduation cap and wearing the hammer and sickle underneath his, uh, (laughs) underneath his uh, robes. He started a podcast uh, called called Eyes Left about um, sort of uh, instances of military resistance to the military industrial complex, to nationalist propaganda, and also works with an organization that I can't remember the name of, but uh, we will drop it in the show notes that seeks to help deprogram and help people get out of the military who 
can't get out but want to get out for for either moral, personal, or ethical reasons. It's super good stuff, and like you know, like it's it's very easy to sort of be uh, you know sort of hardly very hard and very moralistic about these things. I get it, you know what I mean? Like, ultimately, mm-hmm. everyone's engaging in some sort of imperial doctrine here. But at the same time, like, we do actually live in a society, and that society on its own is contradictory, and we sort of have to accept and move forward with that. I'm also going to, very quickly, I did do a, um, those might, many people may know John Krakauer as the guy who wrote the Everest book and Into the Wild. Mm-hmm. Into Thin Air and Into the Wild. He has written a bunch on sports, actually. He he wrote Missoula, Rape and Justice, uh, Rape mm-hmm. and the Justice System in a College Town about the relationship between uh, football and like sort of rape culture. And John Krakauer also, I was very lucky enough to do a photography fellowship with someone who was a close personal friend of John Krakauer's, wow. who uh, described him as an angry man full of survivor's guilt from the Everest disaster, which... I would argue comes across pretty intensely in his writing. Yeah, you know I mean mm-hmm. he's he's uh, one of the greatest American nonfiction writers. I will I will uh, go to bat for that. He is also a very angry dude and has been very outspoken on things, uh, often to his own detriment. He has written a book since 2015, and uh, honestly, I I get it. I get it. I, I I understand if no one wants to work with him. Uh, from everything I've heard about him, one degree removed. But you know what, Freud is what he has created is fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, I can just in this book alone, it's basically a fucking like epic novel about the massive contradiction contradictions that America has to live with as a superpower, uh, especially in the past few decades. So uh, his anger comes out throughout this book a lot, especially in what materials he decides to reference. Like, as you'll see, we'll go through a whole history of Afghanistan that ends with fucking these like scathing Francis Fukuyama quotes. Um, he doesn't see the West uh, as doing very well in the past few decades, as they're not. Um, and uh, it's important that we discuss it right now, especially as the West falls. Um, but before we get to the off-court uh, sort of materials that we usually talk about, we should talk about Pat's like career just really quickly, um, just so people have some context in terms of the sport. Um, so Pat Tillman was a seventh-round pick in the NFL. He was basically an undersized linebacker. Um, he came in in the draft at 196 pounds uh, in the 1998 draft. When it came to pro football, there were far more questions than answers regarding the undersized linebacker. What else is out there after school if it's not football? Everybody that plays on this football field would like to do that someday. If that happens with me, that's great. If not, I'm just going to work hard at you know school and other things and try to open as many doors as I can. I spent a day with Pat Tillman. Very intelligent, really smart, understood everything about the defense, what everybody was doing. He was a very instinctive player, so a lot of times it was almost like, you know, what was he? Is he a linebacker? Was he safety? He said, Coach, you know, I'm probably not going to play pro football. He said, look at me. You know, I'm not going to play linebacker at 196 pounds. He went into the draft knowing, hey, there's a good possibility I may never play again. He's considered a hippie for his long hair. Like, one of his nicknames in college was Fabio, I'm pretty sure. Uh, (laughs) Often often walking around with a book in his hands, which we will talk about. I thought it was a hippie. He'd walk around in his loose-fitting denims flip-flops and he had a book in his hand he was not your average football player 
In his first season as a rookie for the Cardinals, uh, they won their first playoff game in 15 years. The Arizona Cardinals is one of the smallest markets in uh, the entire NFL to this day. Um, so, yeah, he became, be quickly became a fan favorite amongst the small Arizona fan base. Uh, in 2000, he was on the Sports Illustrated All-Pro team for his amazing defensive play. Uh, and he was really at the time only known to hardcore football fans since like he wasn't really a star player um, and played for such a small market team. He also um, played well above his his draft pick. I will say that like he for his contract and for the fact that he was a seventh round pick, he played he punched way above his weight in terms of what was expected at him as the 226th pick in the 1998 draft mm -hmm. i think like uh tom brady was picked just like a not in the same draft but just a few picks ahead of him maybe the only other comparable sort of like upwards trajectory comparatively um but yeah pat really punched above his weight um but uh just for all those just to intro so there's no surprises for all those who aren't familiar with pat tillman's story i'm just going to quote a book review here uh pat tillman the long-haired free-thinking and hard-hitting arizona cardinal walked away from his $3.6 million NFL contract to enlist in the U.S. Army. Tillman essentially became the poster child of the war on terrorism and a model of patriotic, patriotic sacrifice and an honor when he died on a desolate Afghanistan mountain battling the Taliban. Only later do we find out that Tillman's own unit gunned him down, gunned down their brother-in-arms, and the American army and government decided to hide the truth. Um, and it's important to note that the first three people to die in Afghanistan in Afghanistan at the time died of fratricide or friendly fire. The American government basically has like a has had a strong motive to hide this kind of statistic away from the public during some of its most controversial wars. And Pat was one of those statistics. Um, just to quote the book, like later on in the book, um, something that I thought was important to say before we uh, continue is that when the military convenes in fr a friendly fire investigation board, the organization responsible for the incident is called upon to investigate itself. So there are powerful incentives, both institutional and personal, to assign minimal blame. Although the investigating body typically goes el through elaborate, elaborate through emo the motions of unearthing the facts, seldom is the truth pursued with the zeal demonstrated by, say, the National Transportation Safety Board when it investigates commercial aviation uh, disasters. Military investigations of friendly fire incidents have a well-documented history of obscuring the truth more often than revealing it. That alone uh, will play a big part in this story. And the book that we're reading was originally published in 2009, just around the time that Obama was elected. Um, and then undisclosed facts about Tillman's death were unearthed during, uh, through the Multiple Freedom of Information Act request in 2010, which led to the book being republished with this information, which Krakauer basically says leaves little doubt about who directed the cover-up of his fratricide. Um, the mythic narrative of war and its heroes is sort of shattered too when you consider it friendly fire, something we're going to be discussing. Um, it's basically like, as Krakauer says, it's an unsettling reminder that uh, barbarism, senseless violence, and random death are just like the commonplace of these quote unquote just and honorable wars, which is why armies and soldiers have such a hard time dealing with these kinds of occurrences in war. Um, and moving forward, I'm going to be weaving in and out of quoting the book a little bit directly, but we're basically doing like, we're going to use the book as a framework for our discussion, uh, but we're going to obviously do our own takes because that's what we do here uh, at the off court. Yeah, some of some of Krakauer's conclusions, um, maybe like, I'm not going to call them problematic because I hate that word. I think some of his conclusions are interesting they're worth talking about they're worth sort of 
intelligently critiquing. Uh, a lot of his conclusions are right, a lot of his conclusions are wrong, and a lot of his conclusions have been disproven or proven by the 10 years between the book being published, Donald Trump's election, and uh, Joe Biden's election. It's interesting that we haven't gotten a a war hero to the level of Pat Tillman that's so universally recognized and beloved since uh, Pat, Yeah, both as a function of like the U.S. not wanting the sort of blowback that happened because of Pat Tillman, but also because like... Who's the uh, who's the one-eyed fucker in uh, Congress? Um, oh, um, fucking! Uh, I'm sorry, Crenshaw. Yeah, Dan Crenshaw. Right? Like we get we got these like very atomized uh, sort of you know either side of the aisle figures such as uh, Lee Carter, you know, former Marine, or or Dan Crenshaw, you know, right wing lightning rod, uh, little manlet with one eye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> little little man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to build a weapon to surpass Metal Gear one day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like we have, we have, uh, you know, sort of war heroes that have been constructed to cater specifically to our political interests, which I find very interesting because Pat Tillman was, you know, sort of outwardly an expression of of American. Of ultimately, like, American Republican values and, and American actual Democratic values as well. Yeah. I mean, in the book, they uh, quote Ann Coulter. Um, she claimed him as an exemplar of Republican political values, while the left-wing editorial cartoonist Ted Rawl denigrated him in a four-panel comic strip as an idiot who joined the army to kill um, Arabs. Uh, not to get too, like, uh, black pill Twitter brain, but, I mean... Just hearing alone the fact that we haven't had this publicized as a hero since uh, the Bush administration does just kind of make me think a little bit. Although I would say that like the whole group basically that got bin Laden under the Obama administration is also valorized in a weirdly similar way. We just don't know their names. <laughs> we just don't know their names, probably because they don't want to be known either because they're part of a scary Blackwater operation. But I mean – Trump didn't really valorize any uh, enemies. Again, I, I don't want to be a black-pilled fucking, like, was Trump the best thing that happened to America on a geopolitical scale in a while? But there really haven't been these kinds of wars and these kinds of whatever Trump did propaganda-wise, he didn't do to cover up fratricide. He just did to cover up his own bullshit, clearly. Actually, and Donald Trump actually invoked Pat Tillman in a 2017 oh. tirade against black athletes kneeling. Uh, he retweeted a tweet saying NFL player Pat Tillman joined U.S. Army in 2002, killed in action 2004. He fought for our country slash freedom, stand for our anthem, boycott NFL. And it was written by JMAGA45. I wonder if JMAGA45 yeah. is still on Twitter. One second. JMAGA45. Or did he, he leave when that? Oh, wow. He, he survived the Donald burning. Huh. Okay. He has more followers than you and I combined. He also follows 32,000 people. So, I oh, mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those. But yeah, like, uh, yeah, like you know, J Maga still. Oh, in fact, the Pat Tillman tweet, by the way, is his pin tweet. That's so funny. I, I mean, I guess he read some of the uncovered materials too, and he just made his conclusion that you know, Pat, Pat's a good guy. Even though Pat would probably think of him as a fucking little pussy manlet that does not deserve <laughs> to be the president. But yeah, uh, it's also worth noting, by the way, that Pat Tillman looks like the poster child on a recruiting poster like if you if yeah. you painted him and put him in the 1940s it's like an image of uh of like a you know only you can stop the the nazi horde you know what i mean like that sort of thing like he would like you know 
bright eyes, extremely like the manliest jawline I've ever seen. And I say this with like no sadness about my own masculinity. Like that is one hell of a fucking jawline. Uh, right? In the book, like, uh, <laughs> uh, in the book, they they uh, talk about some of the um, Af- Afghan children who would be near their uh, Patoman's unit would often comment about the size of his neck. Just being like gigantic, and them have never witnessing that's of a, uh, that size of a neck. He basically looks like a WWE uh, wrestler, or yeah, like you said, a fucking literally a a propaganda poster from World War Two in a yellow neck, paper journalism. His neck is wider than his head. Like it's not <laughs> it's not by a lot, but it is bizarre to see someone whose neck is just like ever so slightly wider than his head, you know what I mean? But he he was, like, a good-looking dude, but he also looked like exactly what you expect a model soldier to look yeah. like, right? Like, that, I think, is, is super crucial. Like, it wasn't a black soldier. It wasn't, like, a, you know, Steve Rogers, Captain America-style, like, you know, handsome but not too beefy. Like, Pat Tillman was the visual exemplar of, like, what people think when they think specialized operative. And... I think from when we go into a bit of the details into Pat's personality and and sort of his political views and the types of uh, books that he was reading, it's going to keep shattering that image. Like I will probably make his image the uh, the image for this podcast episode, perhaps a couple, um, because there's a lot to go through here. Um, basically, Pat looks like the 16th member of the Expendables, yet. You'll see through the details here. He's quite not that exactly. Um, so we're going to go through uh, a bit of Afghanistan history for people uh, before we really get into Pat. But Pat's own birth is already in a we is already crisscrossing with the uh, with geopolitical history in Afghanistan and sort of leading towards Pat's enlistment in a really like creepy way. Krakauer just brilliantly writes this. But in my own words, um, Pat was born in 1976, midway between San Jose and Oakland, in the municipality of Fairmont, which is a forgotten township in that sort of flashy area. That town just happened to feature Little Kabul, a neighborhood that just happens to be uh, the nexus of what is purportedly the highest concentration of of Afghans in the United States, um, a community made famous literally by the best best-selling novel the kite runner um by the way if at any point i mispronounce stuff just stop me and tell me oh totally uh, yeah that's uh, fine uh, about ten thousand afghans reside in fairmont proper with another fifty thousand scattered across the rest of the bay area the increase of this population started in 1978 when political friction in afghanistan between its political groups was being agitated further by you guessed it the united states and the ussr who were trying to take advantage in the region during the cold war Russia's relationship with Afghanistan started actually in the 1950s, quite a bit before that time, under the leadership of Prime Minister Mahmoud Daoud Khan, uh, who later reclaimed power from his king brother in 1973. But despite uh, this injection of aid into the country from the USSR, Afghanistan remained a poor country and many of its citizens remained tribal in their following of leadership of elders over the government, which wasn't assisting them with social services, while Mahmoud Khan was basically enjoying like fine italian uh fashion and like fancy cars and all this other shit i wonder if that pissed them off um so this led to a rise in marxist thinking in afghanistan which inspired uh, inspired by daun and his own modern tastes 
um, which inspired like women working in the workforce there, less people wearing traditional clothing as, as regular wear. But um, the people calling for this modernity formed the Marxist political organization known as the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan or the PDPA. Uh, under Daoud, every single soldier was actually being sent and trained in the Soviet Union. Uh, but Daoud was playing both sides. Like he was still uh, an Afghani nationalist who had no desire to become, quote, a Soviet puppet. But at the pace at which the country was modernizing, that was worrying him that he might provoke Islamists within his country. Um, so just to the book, the communist PDPA eventually assumed power after Afgan- the Afghanistan army killed President Daoud following a protest in which it was thought that Daoud killed a beloved communist commander. The PDPA renamed the nation the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. Backed by the Soviet Union, the new government moved, moved ruthlessly to establish control across the country. During the PDPA's first 20 months at the helm, 27,000 political dissents were rounded up, transported to a prison outside of Kabul, and summarily executed. Um, the PDPA was going after like basically influential mullahs or members of the intellectual and professional classes that were exactly opposed to them. Um, so many, so many of those refugees were the ones happened to be seeking refugee in the Bay area, just around Pat, the time that Pat Tillman was born literally in the same area. Um, A couple of things here. I want to add one. I hate the kite runner. I would like Khalid Hosseini to drop a pin (laughs) bitch. I want, I want to fight him personally in, in like ways I I have a hard time articulating because I hate him so much. The Kite Runner is like the the perfect example of like Uncle Raj Orientalism that has emerged from uh, a very privileged class of South Asian and Arab writers who come here and basically do U.S. propaganda. Like right. like none of Hosseini's books actually have like a a notable or interesting examination of. Uh, you know the war. They're they're ultimately mm-hmm. a, an examination of like Afghani society and how tragic it is. But like, I'll play this one. When Laura Bush says your book is her favorite book, maybe you should <laughs> yeah. take a minute and and just sort of think about what you're doing to the world. It's it's pretty, it's pretty rough. It's not good. And I've by the way, I've done I've done kite running. It's not just like the when I was in Multan, Pakistan, like that's what my cousins used to do on on Sundays and stuff like that, right? Like on weekends, and you know I would I would hang out with them while they do it, and like you know you would fly kites and and try to cut the other person's kite uh, on rooftops, like you could just like look out over the city and the suburbs and see just kites flying and try to fuck up other people's kites. <laughs> like it was a really fun time, but like yeah, like it is a really horrific book in terms of like how it explores Afghani society because it it ultimately comes to a sort of conclusion that without commenting on the U.S. occupation that the U.S. occupation was sort of there to help fix it. Which we will literally this book might have like a more nuanced and more like thorough take on that. I was just going to say that um, if it means just to reiterate your point um, some Zionists that I'm related to love the Kai Reiner. (laughs) They think it's a great book. Um, so that alone should be concerning it also as well. like ignores for all its like examination of society it ignores the stratification of afghani society and it sort of ignores the various political factions right there's a taliban everyone else but like you know there was a a strong socialist element that both hold held the socialist government accountable um and was not rewarded for it 
and also like you know was very anti-taliban and was clearly not rewarded for it right like there are you know there are an intensely contrasting um, number of like political groups factions and ethnic groups in afghanistan that that extend far beyond the taliban and far beyond the people in the cities in terms of all of that like the the kite runner very wisely chooses or very intentionally i should say chooses to focus specifically on the Taliban and everyone else, you know, again, it, it sort of gives tacit uh, acknowledgement for the U.S. invasion being a good thing as, like, a liberatory force. I hate it a lot. <laughs> I, I'm also, like, of the personal opinion that the Soviets' um, perhaps biggest mistake, uh, <laughs> among other, you know, mistakes, uh, was definitely their invasion and and their seeing Afghanistan as, like, a, a locus of of political warfare for the cold war because it it ultimately was one of the things that led to the collapse of the soviet union and also fucked up the country a lot even though most analysts knew there were thousands of soviet troops in afghanistan last week's coup d'etat caught most of them by surprise maybe it shouldn't have because at least in hindsight there were plenty of indications of what the soviets were contemplating in new delhi bruce dunning reports by all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. But it has not been clear just how the Soviets were able to set up their coup without the Afghans realizing what they had in mind. We can basically see what happens when powers like the USSR and the United States get involved in regions that, as you just said, like the, the governments are also responsible for this reductive thinking about the like the fabric of of factions within Afghanistan like that is as we're going to see like even when they go to Iraq like the conservative brain trust is just completely like is it is so uneducated about these matters that it's just shocking to me that these like that we we yeah the american uh people put so much faith in these fucking governments to go and enact geopolitical actions for them around the world when they know absolutely nothing i feel like i know more than the bush administration about the history of afghanistan by just reading this book um but yeah like after um a lot of afghans um had to uh seek refuge in the in america uh, an intense civil war followed between all these factions so this was muslim muslim holy war warriors the afghan mujahideen um and they all fought the communists so well that in december 1979 the soviet the soviets had to dispatch a hundred thousand troops to afghanistan to quell the rebellion prop up the pdpa and protect their cold war interests in the region um, president jimmy carter at the time called the move by the soviets the most serious threat to peace since the second world war and that initiated the first trade embargo then uh, and then boycott and then subsequently the boycott of the 1980 moscow olympics which we have covered a little bit um if that feels quite hypocritical that's because it is the cia had begun purchasing weapons for the afghanistan mujahideen for at least six months before the soviet invasion and this clandestine support was intended not to d deter moscow but to provoke it according to carter's national security advisor the purpose of arming the afghans was to simulate enough turmoil in afghanistan to induce a quote soviet military intervention and he actually gloated in an interview that the intent of providing arms to the mujahideen was specifically to draw the soviets into an afghan trap and snare them in a debilitating vietnam-like debacle which as we see works quite well in the u.s favor this is where the afghanistan's also perfected mountain warfare against the modern armies of the ussr which comes to bite the u.s in the ass while the soviets did do great harm to the afghan population it actually only hardened them in battle on top of that the cia under president ronald reagan 
was supporting the Afghan holy warriors with billions of dollars in armaments of cash. Most of that money was going to Jalaluddin Haqqani, who's going to be playing a little bit of a role later on. Um, many in the CIA came to regard Haqqani as the most effective commander in the entire Afghan resistance. The Americans thought so highly of Haqqani that at one point he was reportedly brought to the U.S. and was given like a tour of the White House, something I did not know until reading this book. <laughs> uh, and in 1984, a wealthy young engineer from Saudi Arabia Arabia, named Osama bin Laden, arrived in Kos to assist Haqqani's forces. Um, basically not knowing that like these guys were propelling themselves to be some of the important, most important people in that region in the future. The heroic fighting of Osama bin Laden with Haqqani quickly also set him up the ranks to where he literally became the spokesperson for global jihad in the early 90s, or in the late 80s, I mean. In the summer of 1988, bin Laden and uh, Ayman al-Zawari founded al-Qaeda and began training uh, began training its base of support in Kos' Haqqani's homeland. Uh, after the, the Americans gave the Mujahideen extremely powerful anti-helicopter and aircraft missiles that basically made the Soviets' airstrikes useless, um, the Al-Qaeda Al still owns this uh, this material, by Propagandized the way. aggressively through the film Charlie Wilson's War, which, yes. uh, you know, features basically no moral history but a fantastic Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Uh, it's also worth noting that the history of modern warfare is basically the history of different factions basically drawing superpowers into Vietnam uh, mm -hmm. style debacles, right? Because the the Osama bin Laden plan around 9-11 was to bring the U.S. into a quagmire <laughs> that they had put the Soviets in, yep. which the U.S. had orchestrated um, to bring the Soviets into a Vietnam-like quagmire. You know, like, like, give credit where it's due. Ho Chi Minh. Uh, really knew what was up. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of good and bad to be said about Ho Chi Minh. Very complex I, figure, but uh, you yep. know, gotta respect the hustle there. You know, gotta yeah, mama mentality. Um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, actually, uh, speaking of Charlie Wilson's war, Jim Wilkinson, who's gonna appear in this story later, he was uh, the communications officer for the Bush administration, basically responsible for covering up Tillman's death. Plays a big role in Charlie Wilson's war. That's uh, yeah. If if you're gonna watch that. Movie, just take it with a grain of salt. Remember that fucking, uh, I'm pretty sure Sorkin wrote that. Sorkin that... did write it. Yeah, so just consider that when you watch it, even though it features a fucking god-tier level performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman, or rest in peace to the king. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just like you're saying, like going back to Vietnam and then this, finally in 1988, Moscow belatedly acknowledged that the victory against the insurgents would never be achieved at any cost. And Mikhail Gorbachev began to systematically withdraw the Soviet forces from Afghanistan. At that point, the war had claimed the lives of an estimated 25,000 Soviet soldiers and well over a million Afghans, 90% of whom were civilian non-combats. Thanks. I'm also going to drop a little bit of detail because we haven't talked about sports Please. yet. The Afghani... One of the major sports played in Afghanistan is called Buzkashi, which is actually from, I think... I think it's from Kazakhstan initially, but uh, have you heard of the sport? Buzkashi is a sport where it's basically um, polo, but with a dead goat. Um, <laughs> it's where people try to, on horses, beat each other up trying to grab a dead goat and throw it into a goalpost and also have to take the dead goat from each other. Uh, this is oftentimes it's seen as in the west as like 
barbaric. No, right, it's yeah. actually a hunting game. It's a game based around like cultural traditions and means of survival. Basically, they have to throw the goat carcass in the opponent's kazam, which is the goal line, and the other team has to stop them by any means necessary. This sounds like an Olympic sport that we have totally missed the mark on. Like we, we need this sport in the Olympics. We also need to see how non-Central Asian countries can fare playing this fucking sport. Uh, my film school professor, Dureid Manajim, who is a, a fantastic guy, he's, he's actually Afghani. He's from... Afghanistan. He is a uh, yeah. He's a cinematographer from the region. He did a camera on the Hurt Locker mm. and B camera on Zero Dark Thirty. He shot a a great short film called Buzkashi Boys, uh, which was nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah, about. Okay, yeah. So it's about I know of the movie. I just like because it, it it was nominated for an Oscar. I just never saw it, so I didn't know what it was about. Yeah, he he was a cinematographer on it. It was about a kid who wants to play buzkashi which is you know a dangerous and and you know considered a low sport and his dad won't let him it's a very sweet film you know and it's yeah afghani and like you know eurasian and those sorts of sports are all super interesting because they're they're all based around you know sort of ancient tribal tradition and i would love to see a modern iteration of buzkashi that doesn't involve a goat because a sport like this this is like polo for the people it deserves to go it deserves to to go worldwide Afghani people have some awesome, awesome sports, and Buskashi is definitely one of them. If you go to YouTube and look up Buskashi highlights, uh, it's a trip, actually. It's a I, super cool time. I mean, as like we go through the book, we'll see there's often a lot of comparisons between uh, you know Arab culture and uh, American culture and how America usually sees itself as upholding some kind of uh, higher moral stance when really the... These cultures parallel each other in so many ways, and the idea of throwing around a dead goat doesn't even compare half uh, to the horrors of industrial meat farming in America. Or the horrors um, of the way the NFL treats its players. Yeah, literally. Uh, the way <laughs> NFL basically throws around the dead bodies of its fucking players and makes them smash each other's frontal cortexes into each other repeatedly. Um, this sport seems actually a little bit more ethical because at the end of the game, I assume you get to eat said goat. Uh, the goat's pretty dirty at that point. I don't oh, think you okay. get to eat the goat. I think historically okay, you would have eaten the goat. You know what right. I mean? Like, um, but yeah, like it would be cool if you did. But yeah, I highly, I highly suggest checking it out. It is a really intriguing sport, and it's big. Maybe we need to do an episode on that. I, I was thinking, like, I'm sure I could, I could message Duraid and be like, "Hey, do you want to do an interview on?" I, uh, I won't ask Muskashi? them if I won't ask him if Catherine Heigl or Catherine Heigl. Fuck, I'm such an idiot. Catherine Bigelow works for the CIA. I, I'll, I'll make sure to not ask that question. Basically, at this point, um, nine months after Gorbachev uh, pulls his troops from Afghanistan, the Berlin Wall comes down. Um, this signals the imminent dissolution of the Soviet Empire. In the summer of 1989, an essay titled The End of History was published in the Journal of National Interest by someone we all know as Francis Fukuyama, where he wrote, what we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution, the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Um, <laughs> uh, 
After millions of funding in 1991, the CIA decided to cut off uh, the Afghan freedom fighters right when they felt there was zero chance Gorbachev would ever reinstate troops in Afghanistan. America literally said, thank you, next. And officially, America began its state of amnesia, forgetting that Osama bin Laden uh, even existed and had millions of dollars of CIA-backed military technology. So with that in mind, Haqqani and bin Laden basically like begged to differ with Fukuyama's assertion that the game was over, over, the game was was over and western liberal democracy had won shots were basically fired but yeah at this point pat is in high school um he's actually excelling in baseball at the time but is um, constantly being told by his coaches um, even though he's expressing interest in football uh, to not go there to football he's too short he's too small but pat just being kind of the hard-headed uh really motivational guy that he is decides to get into football and is basically single-handedly carrying his football team to the playoffs uh, at Leland High School. We only quickly could touch on on Pat because at this time, Afghanistan is sinking into new depths of fucking misery, um, although most Americans remain completely oblivious to what is happening in that part of the world. Um, With the Afghanistan economy in ruins, the Mujahideen turned to the cultivation of opium poppies as their primary resource of revenue. By the early 1990s, Afghanistan basically went on to supply the lion's share of the world's heroin uh, supply. Um, This leads to infighting within factions of the Mujahideen over control of the drug trade and all the weapons that uh, are left there from Saudi Arabia and the CIA's uh, support. In the 1990s, bin Laden leaves Afghanistan due to the infighting to open Al-Qaeda training camps in Saudi Arabia. Finally, in 1991, Haqqani's forces were able to overrun DRA forces and Anko City became the first major Afghan urban center to come under Mujahideen control since the Soviet invasion. A few months later, the Soviet Union began to dissolve, leading to the DRA to lose its power without this funding. DRA soldiers basically began defecting to the Mujahideen. It's this time that, uh, while plunging into complete chaos, that the USA decides to basically wash its hands of Afghanistan, um, effectively giving up the Cold War mindset. Bush Sr., uh, his government basically decides that like Afghanistan is of no use to them any longer. Another famous one-term president that after losing uh, another. Um, the atomization of the nation, the hunkering of the population into thousands of pre-modern clans, was in some way the perfect incubation to the strand of terrorism that will capture the attention of the United States very shortly. It's around this time at eight at nine eighteen Pacific Standard Time on the morning of February twenty sixth, nineteen ninety three, as Pat was attending class at Leadon High School, a fifteen hundred pound bomb packed into the back of a rented van was detonated three thousand miles across the country from Alamaden in a parking garage beneath the North Tower of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. Omar Abdul Rahman caught the attention of the FBI following the nineteen ninety three bombing of the World Trade Center in New York, which killed six people and injured over a thousand. The cleric, known as the Blind Sheikh, did speak out against the attack. I would like to condemn the bombing of the World Trade Center. Islam does not condone this kind of violence. The bomb had been assembled, delivered, and detonated by a Kuwaiti named Ramzi Yusuf under the supervision of his uncle Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who later would be identified as the principal architect of the attack against the same buildings on September 11, 2001. Yusuf had learned the art of making bombs from a manual written by the CIA, for the Mujahideen to use to struggle against the Soviets while they were in their country. He was given the CIA instruction booklet while attending an Al-Qaeda training camp in Khost, Afghanistan, around 1992. But back to Pat. 
It's during the year of the World Trade Center bombing that Pat Tillman goes through this massive growth spurt and essentially then moves on to football, carries his Leland High School football team to a third seed in the California High School playoffs in an infamous game where Pat helped a team gain a 55-0 lead over San Jose. (laughs) Pat was actually benched as respect to the other team, but he was so fucking like intense that he actually snuck his way onto the special team against his coach's approval and they ended up winning the game like 75 to like 10 or something Um, to be honest yeah and as we said earlier pat looks like your average american gladiator like he has a chiseled jaw blue eyes and long hair at the time before he had to shave it for the army he looks like the stereotype of a football player which is like a good reason why um this story is so fascinating like Pat seems to really love cats, which is uh, a very uh, big digression from what you would expect from uh, football players. A diary that Pat kept as he is, as a 16-year-old reveals an introspective youth who mourned the death of a beloved cat, opined that religion was inadequate to eludicate the mysteries of existence, and ruminated on the downside of his empathetic nature. I can't quote, I can't even be an asshole to someone anymore, the journal sardonically notes. Without feeling bad, I'm too conscious of their feelings. Like he... What football player is like digressing through his atheism over a dead cat? You know, just that alone is like a pretty amazing image to think of. Um, There was a fact I found uh, when I was like looking at Pat Tillman where apparently he spent a lot of the times when he was in the army. He spent a lot of his time in like free time trying to convince his fellow soldiers that cats are better than dogs. Yes. Like he had a a very weird focus on on why felines are the superior domestic pet which i find uh which i find very funny and very interesting yeah as a cat person i assume too you would uh, appreciate that as somebody who also likes to post photos of your beautiful boys it's during this time that pat meets his longtime girlfriend mary who will eventually become his widow wife all while pat is about to play the final football game of leland's regular season which the team won to earn the berth in the california high school playoffs it's at that time that pat almost actually loses an opportunity to get a football scholarship when he gets into a brawl outside of a pizza restaurant thinking he was beating up a bully who was fighting his friend when it was actually an innocent standby or basically pat like pointed at the biggest person in this fight and decided i'm gonna make a point with him the guy ended up being an innocent standby uh pat was saving his friend from the brawl when he picked the biggest kid who wasn't actually involved in the fight um showcasing his amazing ability to rush people but his underdeveloped uh, underdeveloped upper frontal cortex was clearly making bad decisions because he was a drunk fucking 18 year old tillman snaps out of it he apologizes to the cops when they show up and he realizes that he was brutalizing the wrong kid in the process of being recruited by uh, the few universities that would take him since again he was an undersized linebacker tillman didn't mean uh didn't mention this upcoming felony charge uh when signing actually an informal scholarship letter of commitment to arizona state university uh, a judge ended up reducing the charges to a misdemeanor when told this in the trial that he was getting a scholarship which just shows you how the american fucking legal system work it's very it's very free and it's based on stupid shit like this at first uh the victim uh, who was upset about this unfair judgment ended up actually completely changing their judgment in 2004 when Tillman essentially became the first person that they knew personally to have died in the war and were inspired by this motiva- his motivation to fight after 9-11. Patriotism basically fixes everything in America. It's at this time in his time in juvenile that Pat Pat's love of reading is really established. Um, he basically realizes like I need to train my intellect the same way as my physical body to ever to never make a bad decision like he did that time. I mean, 
mean, I respect that. I'll be honest. I, I respect that. I, you know, uh, right thing, maybe weird reasons, but like, I eh, can't really, can't really fault him for it. I, most athletes would double down in that. Uh, I think most, especially like macho sort of young athletes would double down in those situations. I think just a little bit of introspection, that, that alone can break the stereotype. In spring 1994, as Pat was contemplating this impending incarceration, a particular community in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan basically altered the course of history when the village Bula, a devout but unsophisticated 35-year-old Pashtun named Muhammad Omar, we didn't even talk about Pashtuns being like another aspect of Afghanistan, like the fabric of Afghanistan's like social groups and everything. It's just a lot more complicated than the American army would be led to believe. Basically, this uh, young man named Mohammed Omar gave birth to the Taliban uh, in a one-room mosque in that region. Um, Kandahar province actually had a booming figs, melons, grapes, and pomegranate orchards economy. That was a major part of uh, the country's economy. The Soviets basically wiped it out by burning all the orchards and the natural irrigation system that had been like built over centuries to keep these things going. Um, these same farmers had to diversify and turn their lands into poppy fields for heroin production. This turned the province into a series of checkpoints ran by heroin militias. Going through several of these checkpoints and being harassed for money basically inspired Mohammed Omar to organize and forcefully remove the checkpoints from his, his country is something that he did more for the CIA alone, just there. Uh, <laughs> he did more for Afghanistan than the CIA, just in that action alone. Um, the group came to be known as the Taliban. The name is a Pashto word meaning the student of Islam, and this was bestowed by Omar. The Taliban quickly rose to power in Afghanistan with many youth supporting the movement while it was also receiving financial backing from Pakistan's inter-services intelligence, known as the ICI, basically the equivalent to the CIA in Pakistan. Although They're the horrific, is... by the way. They basically run the country, and they have for years and years. Yeah, I was also thinking this episode might be a two-parter, because we're going to have to talk a little bit about where Pakistan is currently on the geopolitical scale, and how this leads to where we are now. Um, the support for the ICI, which you could talk about maybe a bit too, for Abdul, is a bit complex. Like There are Islamists within this ICI who supported Omar's vision, but also like saw it basically as an effective counterattack against uh, India, which was like, is still is Pakistan's essentially their nuclear rival. Yeah, the, uh, the ICI ICI is interesting because the ICI is, you know, in, in a country that often makes the world stage for its like uh, international and domestic gaffes in security. The ICI is one of the most effective counter like intelligence agencies on the planet. They are completely mercenary, despite the fact that they're filled with various ideologues, you know, with the idea that India is the enemy to be halted at all costs. But because of this prevailing ideology, both to uphold Islam within Pakistan and make sure India always gets the shit end of the stick. They have yes. collaborated with everyone. They are very in bed with the CIA, and they've also been instrumental to revolutions within the country time and time again. Uh, not revolutions, coups is a better way to put it. And the ICI is, yeah, they are, you know, they their fingers are all over the Middle East. You know, they've worked with everyone. And it's, yeah, it's sort of worth noting that, you know, whenever anything happens that's in Pakistan from the Osama bin Laden assassination to other things, yep. you can bet your ass the ICI is quietly a part of it, uh, even if the Pakistani government is not uh, or doesn't know. <laughs> I think they, yeah. from what I understand, they're still in denial about this financial backing that they were injecting into Afghanistan in the early 90s. Yes, they, just they are. Refu yeah, they refuse to admit it because 
it would implicate them uh, basically just as strongly in de- destabilizing the region as the CIA. But basically, after shortly after like the commanding takeover backed by the ICI, Sharia law is implemented in Afghanistan. More importantly than you know the aspects of Sharia law, any modern type of media piece or technology was banned. So Afghanistan was like cut off from the modern world after the, the rise of Marxist thinking there, and essentially was like plunged back into the sort of elder tribal base that it was always running, um, and what Mahmoud Daoud was trying to avoid uh, for selfish reasons. And to always remember, these things are an outcome first and foremost of U.S. foreign policy. Yes. Uh, U.S. form, I mean, partially Soviets, but then the CIA really just made sure that was that was going to be the result. Um, despite this chilling assault on education, the rights of women, and ordinary pleasures, the initial response of most countries, including the United States, to the ascendancy of the Taliban ranged from apathy to guarded optimism. Wow, usually this would be the reason that America would go and invade Afghanistan. Um, some intelligence analysts did ring alarm, be- alarm bells that were ignored, like pointing to the fact that Afghanistan now held both CIA-provided weaponry and sophisticated missile systems, as well as the ones that the Soviets had provided just before that. Plus, just like The Undertaker, Osama bin Laden was back in town, baby. He was in Afghanistan after the U.S. convinced Sudan to basically kick him out, where he was training al-Qaeda warriors to fight Saudi Arabia. He realized Saudi Arabia was basically collaborating with America too much. While American intelligence forces smugly congratulated themselves for uprooting uh, bin Laden, he was transferring his whole base of Afghanistan, where he was happily welcomed and Omar and Bin Laden basically became BFFs, uh, which exemplified the United States' complete ignorance to what was happening in the region at the time. Back in America, where Pat was now attending Arizona State University, Pat was determined to excel academically as well as athletically, um, as he had not done so in high school. He spent almost as much time studying as he did in the gym or the practice field. So to keep up with his studies, he actually hired a tutor who a friend of his was also using, and that friend was an uncommonly talented tennis player from Hungary named Reka. I will not try to pronounce his fucking name. I've already been impressing you guys with my uh, pronunciations of Arabic names from my one year of studying Arabic in Israel in preparation to uh, no scope. uh, uh, Palestinian (laughs) children. Yeah, I'm sorry. So uh, I forgive all the Hungarians who are listening, but Reka is their name. Uh, He would have extensive talks with with Reka, uh, who had grown up in Budapest under a repressive communist government, witnessed the fall of the Iron Curtain as a teenager, and then leaped at the opportunity to come to the United States upon winning an athletic scholarship to attend Arizona State University. Reka would would recount being fascinated with Tillman's own fascination with her. The white American star athlete of a school usually wasn't interested in these kinds of backgrounds and learning the geopolitics of Soviet-era Budapest. That alone is just fascinating about Tillman. I don't know what he said to her. He might have just been like, hell yeah, cool story, bro, the whole time. But just the fact that he wasn't calling her gay for being like a communist or something alone <laughs> is uh, is a cool thing. And it's at that time that uh, Tillman leads ASU to the Rose Bowl. They had essentially let the game slip away in the final minutes of devastating fashion, but just being in the Rose Bowl alone for the first time and God knows how long was a huge feat. Pat, however, spent little time agonizing over the defeat. He had acquitted himself well on the field and in any case there was nothing or anyone else could do to change the outcome he simply accepted the loss and moved on he took the l uh this is where we get up to the lead up to enlistment from the nfl and the eventual iraq war 
Are you into video games or ever wondered why something like video games is even important to be discussed, to be listened to? If so, check out Buffs and Nerfs, another podcast from the Mind Refinery. Hosts Andrew and Sam will talk about the latest from the gaming world and dive deep into the culture of games. From the game mechanics of Destiny 2, which... God, stop Bungie making me spend money and play your fucking video game. I got to do research for this podcast. Uh, to the future of cloud gaming, they explore the relevance of gaming through personal experience and their impact on society. That was a great episode, too. I highly recommend listening to this podcast. As Pat was preparing for his first game in the NFL following his successful outing, with the Arizona Cardinals training camp, where he, by the way, tackled a veteran fullback named Cedric Smith. He weighed uh, 60 pounds more than Tillman, uh, and he fucking tackled him so hard that he tore a ligament in his leg and ended his football career in practice. Um, something uh, that's extremely frowned upon in practice, by the way, because like you're not supposed to go that hard, but Pat was just like determined to make the, the starting lineup of the team. When I called Pat, he was so excited to be in Arizona, it was like he was a first-round draft choice. I said, look, make it on special teams. You'll be a captain of special teams. I guarantee it. that, Frank. <laughs> I'll start in eight games, and I will make you proud of me, Frank. That was the end of the conversation. As this was happening, by the way, the American embassy in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, was bombed by two Saudis. The death count was approximately 213 people. 4,500 people were injured, including more than 150 who were blinded by flying glass. Uh, six months earlier, while Tillman was preparing for the NFL draft in Phoenix, the two Al-Qaeda leaders per, uh, that we mentioned earlier, Haqqani and, uh, or sorry, Omar and Bin Laden, purportedly acting on behalf of the coalition, they called the World Islamic Front for Jihad Against Jews and Crusaders. Damn, they are good at branding. Um, had f- they had <laughs> It's the right me- there in the title. I will say that. Like, I appreciate Everything. their, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's so direct. Kind of cool sounding, too. I, I almost joined. At facts, uh, at that time, they had facts a message from Afghanistan to a London newspaper in which they declared essentially a fatwa on the entirety of America for its occupation and destabilization of the Arab Peninsula. Two things America definitely enjoyed doing in the past century. Lawrence Wright notes in his book, uh, The Looming Tower, that some, even the Arab world, saw the attacks as senseless violence that will just lure America to Afghanistan. But in actuality, that was Bin Laden's intention all along. Clinton, Clinton, so Bill Clinton is in uh, office at the time. Uh, you guys know who he is. I'm trying to do my Bill Clinton impression. It's not working. Uh, Clinton thought sax, uh, you, you missed the sax solo. That's I missed what you... the sax solo exactly. Uh, Nick Nurse weirdly sounds like 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 uh, Clinton to me sometimes. He evokes that kind of like drawl. Uh, uh, do you have, Midwestern do you good old Midwestern good old boy sort of sort of sound. Right. It's like a exactly. very specific type of deal i'm also going to doubly recommend the looming tower um are you a 9-11 truther Aton? no because it like i i am in a sense that like uh, uh, the details in this book really outline what like basically that conspiracy misses the entire point of what really happened with 9-11 which is like B- bush was too stupid to come up with it right um uh, so that's the only re- i used to think bush did 9-11 but then i just read these accounts and these kinds of books about what happened and realize that he's too I'm much of a dumbass. Definitely like a Rumsfeld did nine 11 type guy where I'm yeah. like, I don't, I don't think the, that there were bombs planted in the world trade center or anything like that. Like I, I, I mean, tower seven is a whole other thing, but like, I don't think that there was a, there was like an intentional bomb planted or, or, you know, the jet fuel can't melt steel beams or whatever, but like, it's not a conspiracy to say that us, 
that U.S. Uh, intelligence, um, well, not even U.S. intelligence. Yeah, I guess U.S. intelligence knew about uh, an impending attack of like catastrophic magnitude potentially on the World Trade Centers and chose to do nothing about it. And in fact, ensured that its key personnel would be would be yes. far and away from the site, right? Like, I guess that's my, my sort of thing is like, oh, we, we see this impending crisis. We're not going to do anything about it. And we're going to turn it into opportunity because the Looming Tower outlines this really well. We're like the FBI and CIA both had intelligence that went straight up to the top in terms of, hey, something bad is about to happen. We're not sure what, but like, you know, there's something being planned here and, and we do have the power to stop it. Just how incredibly that was ignored like you know people who had no connection to sort of the the top line of power were still had an understanding of like something going to go down and then they just chose like when that information was passed up it was chosen not to be acted on yeah i mean like th- th- it's outlined in this book Krakauer references lawrence Wright's uh looming tower quite a bit yeah and i i would actually say just about what you were saying at the beginning of the episode lawrence Wright. Aside from maybe some of his politics, like is probably up there in terms of the top five nonfiction writers uh, in America. I mean, his book on Scientology is unbelievable. And his newest uh, book on Al-Qaeda is quite interesting. I was reading parts of it. Um, Lawrence Wright uh, notes in his book pretty aptly that like the Arab world did see this as senseless violence that will lure America to Afghanistan. But in actuality, that is what Bin Laden wanted all the time. Maybe he was working closely with Rumsfeld on it. Um, Clinton, though, decided uh, – Clinton at the time actually decided that a full-scale attack on Afghanistan was too drastic and he wouldn't get the support of Americans. But it was actually mostly because Clinton was embroiled in his own little scandal, which we won't get into too much in the podcast. But let's just say that Bill was uh, dabbling in his own version of Haram, you know, Um, between between denying the sexual relations with that woman to appearing on TV to admit that he did have sexual relations with that woman. An airstrike on Bin Laden was being planned specifically on Zawar Keeley, where he was believed to be heading. The attacks actually only killed six jihadis, three Yemenis, an Uzbek, an Egyptian and one Saudi, neither of whom were Bin Laden. Al-Zawari, Haqqani, nor any other Al-Qaeda leader. Actually, Bin Laden happened to be driving to Zawarkili and in his last minute told the driver that he had to turn around due to, and I quote, bad vibes. Uh, according, to, <laughs> according to unconfirmed reports, a number of the 18-foot-long missiles had also landed without exploding, which Bin Laden then salvaged and sold to China for at least $10 million. You sort of <laughs> love to see it. I mean, I've I've gone on to this. I've gone on this in other podcasts. Um, China, low key, uh, incredible, incredible arbiter of global politics. <laughs> like Saudi Arabia, much like Israel, is not a declared nuclear power, but they almost definitely, and by almost definitely, I, I genuinely believe they have nuclear missiles that were sold to them by China, which. Uh, is like one of the main reasons there hasn't been a major flare up in the Middle East between those two countries because they both don't quote unquote do not have nukes, but they both know that the other has nukes. It's um, China actually. I was I reference I reference Bin Laden as the Undertaker, but China is slowly becoming the Undertaker of this century, fucking emerging from the depths and ready to. Uh... Uh yeah, take over. I'm, the new I'm Adam down, Curtis whatever. doc goes into China really well too. I, I, I haven't. Uh, I'm only an episode in, so do not. Um, I will uh, not. But I, I did. Uh, we were gonna watch it, and I realized that my girlfriend had never watched Hypernormalization, so I fucking forced her to watch it. Uh, very mansplain forcing, but she ended up 
loving it. So I cannot wait to crush that show. But um, so yeah, it's around this time that Bin Laden is gloating about the aftermath of the missile attack, uh, claiming that uh, Clinton uh, did it literally just to like divert attention from the Lewinsky scandal. It's also around this time that Pat makes it onto the Cardinals as a seventh round, uh, late seventh round draft pick, considered too undersized for a linebacker at 196 pounds. But Pat was different and unique for a, a few other reasons. Like we said, Pat stood out from his other NFL teammates because when it came to pets, he was a cat person and not a dog guy. Tillman even went as far as to try and persuade his teammates of the superior, quote, the superiority of cats over all other species. On the morning of October 12th, 2000, four days after Tillman helped the Cardinals defeat the Browns during his first season, the USS Cole, a billion dollar, 505 foot long guided missile destroyer, arrived in the Yemeni port of Aden on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula to top off its fuel tanks at an offshore base. The vessel was basically supposed to be indestructible, but a small uh, fishing boat of uh, two uh, Arab fishermen got just close enough to wave hello to the soldiers and then detonate hundreds of pounds of C4. They saw the exhaust Um, port and used the force. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I want to express my deep sorrow at the explosion involving the U.S. naval vessel Cole in Yemen. My prayers are with the families of those killed and injured and with all the brave men and women in uniform who serve our country every day around the world. Rest assured that the United States will seek with all our resources to determine the facts surrounding this tragedy. We will continue taking every step we can to protect our troops, our diplomats, but we will not retreat from our responsibilities. If it turns out, as it appears, to have been a terrorist act, we will hold those who committed it accountable and take appropriate steps. And the CIA, again, did not take uh, bin Laden's new bait, decided against attacking him once again. So bin Laden had to envision something a little bit bigger to uh, inspire the American invasion of Afghanistan. It's shortly after this that George Bush totally wins fair and square without the popular vote entirely reliant on the electoral college something we have never seen since ever (laughs) trying to make a joke (laughs) it came down to what like 12 people in one florida county like uh what an incredible time yeah full-on bush supporters are on the supreme court denying that they are voting for bush for any political reasons it's just great florida's electoral votes remain the biggest questions up until the ruling of bush's win uh due to quote widespread voting irregularities uh america is like fucking a broken record and after the controversial supreme court ruling which many believe including me and abdul literally handed the election to george's george fail son w bush who then effectively becomes the 43rd president of the united states which had a bit of an impact on pat tillman's life it's around this time that dr z zimmerman declared pat to be the most accomplished strong safety in the league this is in 2000 after pat missed many pro bowl votes due to the lack of success by the cardinals that year who went three and 13 uh with pat's help zimmerman's article was actually posted on the internet on january 3rd 2001 in the nation's capital that day, Richard Clark, the Clinton administrator's national coordinator for security, infrastructure protection, and counterterrorism, briefed the incoming Bush administration's new national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice, on the dire threat that the United States faced from Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. On January 25th, Clark alerted Rice that six recent intelligence reports uncovered statements from al-Qaeda, operatives boasting about an upcoming attack. Over the following weeks, he repeatedly implored her to persuade President Bush to give much higher priority to terrorism and 
in general to bin Laden in particular, but his emails were met with apathy and annoyance, which either indicates Bush's complete idiocy or the plans to for Bush to do 9-11 at the time. And uh, yeah, literally cut to Bush at the kindergarten reading that book. Um, it's also around this time that Pat refuses a $9 million deal with the Rams to stay with the Cardinals for a measly half million dollars, literally just due to allegiance to the organization that drafted him and how much he liked the staff. His agent said at the time that he had never had a player turn down that much money. Pat is seemingly in previous to greed. Um, Tillman also broke further stereotypes by uh, like excelling academically in uh, high school. Because he loved engaging in informed debate, Pat made an effort to study history, economic theory, and world events. Uh, towards the end, he read the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, and the works of writers ranging from Adolf Hitler to Henry David Thoreau. Wow, what a fucking spectrum. Uh, although yeah, Tillman a held... spectrum. <laughs> yeah. I also <laughs> like so how he, he, read it all. he Kevin Garnetted it, right? Like, he just stuck around. Around, yes. despite the fact they probably would have had a Super Bowl somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think it's like right before he goes to the army that the Seahawks offer him an, a huge offer too. And that leads to like the Giants and all these other teams that were in the playoff picture during the early aughts. And Pat stayed with the fucking Arizona Cardinals, who I believe haven't. I, maybe an NFL person will get really mad when I say this. I don't believe they've made the playoffs since the 2000s. Definitely not reached the conference championships at any point. So it's actually around this time that Tillman also reveals himself as an advocate for the right of homosexuals. He demanded of Lyle Sten- Stentich, uh, sorry for the mispronunciation, uh, an ASU football coach for, him, he, for whom he had great respect. He actually asked him directly, would you coach gays? And when the coach answered that not only yes, he would do it again and has in the past, Tillman's a team for the coach grew every uh, even higher and this can be partially attributed to pat's like unique agnostic upbringing which there's not that much deals details about but pretty uncommon for a football player to be openly agnostic and also come from like a california agnostic upbringing of some time he was pretty secular in general by the way they uh they lost the nfc championship in 2015 they lost the super bowl in 2008 but yeah their their playoff record uh, not great (laughs) <laughs> Not great. It's around this time that right before 9-11, the Bush administration is hearing the alarm bells from the CIA and other intelligence agencies, but is seemingly not taking them seriously at all. A little bit after this, around the time the Cardinals were arriving in training camp for that year, Bush got his infamous Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. letter in a presidential b- briefing. This memo was the 36th occasion during which the preceding eight months that the CIA had alerted the White House to the threat posed by al-Qaeda or Bin Laden. After a CIA officer finished briefing President Bush on the memo, the commander-in-chief was reportedly openly disdainful of the warning it contained. Quote, all right, Bush told the officers in a sarcastic tone of voice, quote, you've covered your ass and then dismissed him. About a week later, 9-11 happens. Uh, Tillman witnesses the attack <laughs> on TV at a hotel during a training camp. And in an interview that week, Pat discusses how his grandfather had fought for the country's freedoms during Pearl Harbor, and he had not done shit for what he takes for granted every day. The NFL postponed the first weeks of games around that time. Pat uh, couldn't toe the line and express the need for the NFL to continue like a lot of other players were doing at the time. He suggested in an interview that maybe football isn't the most important thing in the world. Many did not 
take this interview to heart at all or considered what Pat would do next. It was during a Philadelphia Eagles game that Tillman was presented with a video from George Bush that was being projected to the entire arena, delaying the game by 10 minutes. George Bush then announced Operation Enduring Freedom. The U.S. was basically now at war. As the NFL season went on, Bush and the American Army took over Kabul and other parts of... That's, sorry, that's crazy. Like, the fact that they announced Enduring I didn't realize remember this they announced enduring freedom during a football game the announcement was broadcast during a game and the game had to be like last minute delayed because of this announcement and they projected it on the screens and they projected it on a massive screen and as we're going to see bush then projects another message at football games later on and gets a little bit more booze at the time than he does here where he gets massive cheers from the entire crowd they basically like it was being played everywhere like it was fucking like 1984 we're going to war and everyone's got to watch this fucking message everywhere yeah it was very fucking dystopian it would be crazy if it was specifically at this game to pat i think the way i worded it it's unsurprising to me if it would be that's probably the worst part my fellow citizens at this hour american and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm iraq to free its people and to defend the world from grave danger On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense. So they announced enduring freedom because like they, they're seemingly a very quick victory over Afghanistan to Bush's eyes, which is why they quickly divert to a plan to come up with the Iraq war. But it's also around this time that the first major ca- the first major casualty happens in Afghanistan. Um, An inexperienced Air Force tactical air controller had just calculated the coordinates of an enemy fighting position and was about to call in an airstrike when the batteries die in his his GPS device, which causes his display to go dark. Frantically, the air controller put new batteries into the GPS. The numbers that flashed on the screen on the moment as the device was... uh, was was coming on uh he he gives these coordinates to a b-52 flying overhead to drop its lethal uh payload on these coordinates the controller was unaware however that after the battery replacement in his gps automatically defaulted to display the coordinates of his own position he mistakenly called in these coordinates instead of the taliban's position and the upshot was the first three members of the american military to die in the afghanistan war so the yeah the first people the first americans to die in the afghanistan war friendly fired their own fucking people in this really really tragic way um by 2002 hundreds of afghans were killed by the u.s but osama bin laden mullah muhammad omar and jaluddin haqqani were all still at large with their locations remain unknown and this is where we get to the iraq war this is the halfway point by the way so we're actually going to be discussing this uh, subject a little bit more next week. Um, it's just such a massive, dense subject with so much history that me and Abdul are really enjoying going through. So this is looking like a two-parter. We're going to be going into the Iraq war and the eventual deployment of Pat Tillman to Afghanistan, which leads to his death. And then eventually the efforts put forth by the U.S. military and the American government to cover up his death for propaganda reasons. If you like this episode, if you like our engaging, astute, brilliant 
beautiful political analysis and you want to find out more or hear more, check out all the podcasts, all the content, all the awesome work being done at The Mind Refinery online and uh, and all their other stuff at themindrefinery.com. <laughs>